Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Greg Masters, for our broadcast today on ACO Watch, a midweek review. This is the 11th broadcast in our weekly series that monitors the accountable care organization industry, focusing on the emergence of known market entrants, developing regulatory environment, and ongoing industry buzz. Today, we have a slightly different program for you than was originally anticipated, and uh, we have the good fortune that earlier uh, this month, actually February 1st, Brookings Institution hosted the event Achieving Better Care at Lower Cost Through Accountable Care Organizations. This is a live webcast with a star-studded faculty, including Mark McClellan, Director, Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at Brookings, and Donald Berwick, known to most of us as Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as well as Elliot Fisher, who's the director for the Center for Population Health at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice, among several others. And today what we're going to do, since this was such a high-quality event uh, from informed people, if you will, leader thought leaders in the health reform conversation and certainly leading the charge, in terms of implementation, uh, I thought we would uh, rebroadcast this segments of this program today for you, starting with an introduction by Mark McClellan. Welcome. He's the MC for the event. And I, I suppose we could call the lead-off with Don Berwick as the keynote. Don Berwick is going to talk about goals for accountable health care organizations. And as we sit today, it is uh, February the 10th, so this uh, information is uh, somewhat uh, nine days old now. We're still waiting for the release by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services of the Notice of Proposed Rules around uh, accountable care organizations. So um, this is timely information, and I have published um, uh, some of the insights from Dr. Berwick on ACOWatch.com. Uh, I, I dubbed it the Reading the Berwick Tea Leaves uh, with the heading of waiting, uh, uh, waiting for CMS, as in the Waiting for Godot series. So, yes, we're still waiting, and Dr. Berwick offers some very key insights as to uh, what we can expect to see in these uh, first round of, uh, of proposed rules out of CMS. Here's here's the one thing I'm going to preview for you because I think this is uh, key as to where he's coming from, and I, I label this as the first key insight that he offers, and it's quote: "When values are strong, rules are unnecessary. When values are weak, rules are insufficient." So this man definitely gets to uh, the underlying issue of culture. Uh, as to whether or not an ACO is going to succeed, irrespective of the ultimate version of these rules as they're finally codified into federal regs. The bottom line is, where's the culture? Is it a patient's first, patient-centric culture that wants to really grab the bull by the horns and make a difference here on per capita spending and quality promotion? 
or is it just sort of a, you know, a business as usual, I'm going to say charade to participate in an ever shifting series of financial incentives. Okay, so with that, I'm going to um, stop talking and I'm going to start the program here. And we're going to listen to the introduction by Dr. McClellan, followed by the keynote from Dr. Berwick. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'd uh, like to ask everyone who's not in a seat yet to take one. We do still have a few around the room. Um, and I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the Brookings Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform and the Dartmouth Institute to today's event on achieving better care at a lower cost through accountable care organizations. The Engelberg Center and the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice are very uh, enthusiastic about convening this event today. I'm Mark McClellan. I'm the director of the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform here at Brookings and the co-director with Elliot Fisher of the Brookings Dartmouth ACO Learning Network. Uh, we're meeting today at a very critical time for healthcare reform, and we're also meeting today on a very challenging day from a weather standpoint. So uh, I, I really appreciate all of you braving the weather, not only to get here, but to get here on time. Special thanks to all of our panelists who have come from uh, all over the country, northeast, west, midwest, uh, everywhere uh, to be here. And I also want to welcome the many people who couldn't be here in person and are joining us by webcast today. Uh, unfortunately, Nancy Ann DeParle is not going to be able to join us due to some urgent matters related to the situation in the Middle East and her new duties as De Deputy Chief of Staff. But regardless of the weather and the other logistical issues, the urgency of the issues that we are discussing here today remains. So we're very glad to convene this timely discussion today. You all know that most of the public attention around health care reform has understandably been focused on issues of coverage expansions and their costs and mandates and constitutional challenges and things like that. Those are certainly very important issues. But at the same time, Medicare and states and private payers and businesses and healthcare organizations, consumer groups, uh, others are all taking many new steps to try to reform the way that healthcare is delivered to reduce costs while improving health. And that's what I think of as real healthcare reform. And today we're, we're focusing on a critical aspect of real health care reform, the next steps in the implementation of accountable care organizations, ACOs. The idea behind ACOs, as I think many people know at this point, is common to many kinds of health care reforms, paying more for better care at a lower cost, but not doing so in a way that's too disruptive to current payment systems and the current methods for delivering much-needed care. ACOs are coordinated networks of providers with shared responsibility for delivering better care at a lower cost, and they're accountable for that. They're accountable for that, built into the reporting and the payment system for the organization. The aim uh, behind all of this is to reward value instead of volume and intensity by making providers eligible to share in the savings that result if they are able to take steps that reduce overall health care costs while maintaining or improving quality of care. ACOs are intended to provide better support for things that doctors that I talk to every day say we don't do well in our healthcare system today. Coordination and integration of care, investments in important kinds of health information technology, and a wide range of other approaches that get to that bottom line goal of better health and lower cost. The idea is to provide more payments for these kinds of services in return for more accountability. 
not just for volume and intensity, but for what we really want, better care and lower costs. And something I think is important to note, and we're going to talk a lot about today, these ideas are being implemented now. They're being implemented in some Medicare demonstration programs, like the Physician Group Practice Program and the Multipayer Medicare Healthcare Quality Demonstrations in Indianapolis and North Carolina. They're being implemented, as you'll hear, in the private sector and state programs around the country. So what we want to do today is get practical, as uh, Deb Ness said, get concrete. Uh, what we're learning from these private plans and states and Medicare demos, uh, what are they telling us about what can and can't be done effectively in terms of ACO types of reforms? What are some other steps that share the same goals as ACOs? Paying more for better care, not just more care or more complications. Partial and full capitation plans, medical homes. Uh, IT payments, uh, 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 there are a wide range of other reforms. Uh, how can these all be related to be sources of synergy to get to better care and lower costs? Now, the Engelberg Center here at Brookings and the Dartmouth Institute have been collaborating for some time to provide tools and guidance and support to put accountable care, as I've just been describing it, into practice to support better care at a lower cost, working collaboratively with providers and consumers and other groups in both the public and private sectors. We're supporting the implementation of five pilot ACOs for commercially insured populations right now. We've also started the second year of our expanded ACO learning network, which is supporting over 80 organizations around the country through the technical and practical details of the ACO implementation process. And along with our learning network and our pilot sites, we're also leading some more advanced ACO implementation groups, building and conducting ACO evaluations and surveys, and helping to develop and align on accurate, uh, reliable, meaningful performance measures, timely performance measures, as well as providing a number of other analytical resources. One of those resources is coming out today, so we're very pleased to announce the release of the Brookings Dartmouth ACO Toolkit. Uh, this toolkit, which is now available online at acolearningnetwork.org, is about 200 pages of comprehensive ACO implementation guidance based on firsthand experience of people who are working now on programs like this, a wide range uh, of collaborators on this overall effort. You all should have received a sheet in your packet with some more information on the toolkit along with the agenda for today's event. Now today we're bringing together, this is one more step in this process, bringing together experts, policymakers, a number of the organizations that have been implementing ACOs and reforms that relate to ACOs from around the country to continue this work and this discussion. We're going to focus, again, in some practical depth. We're going to try to get concrete on a couple of critical implementation issues in particular. One of those very important issues is, is how to effectively engage consumers in the implementation of accountable care. That will be the focus of the first part of the morning. And the second is on the provider side, how do we support the movement of ACOs to more accountability? How do we actually do this in practice, taking account uh, of all the, the uh, the ideas, all the concepts, all the theoretical concerns, how do we really make that practical and real uh, to make sure that we're having uh, the right kind of impact from, uh, from these reforms. So we're going to be hearing from two sets of panelists that are going to be exploring both of these critical issues. We're going to lead off each panel with some framing remarks to provide an overview and hopefully get the discussion going, uh, again, around these concrete and practical next steps. After the opening remarks, Elliot Fisher and I are going to help to moderate a discussion among the panelists. So I don't think they really need us as uh, moderators very much. These are all experts uh, on both uh, the, the big picture and the practical steps in their own right. 
uh, we're going to go into some more detail. We're then going to have a little bit of time at the end of each panel for questions and, and uh, brief comments from all of you. Uh, so looking ahead to that, there are going to be a couple of roaming mics um, attached to some of our staff uh, in the audience who will come around to you. So uh, when we get to that part of each session, if you've got a comment to make or a question to ask, just uh, raise your hand, and we'll try to get in as many as we can as quickly as possible. Um, as I mentioned before, this event is coming at a critical time. The, the, the goal of engaging consumers, making sure there's strong incentives in place to encourage accountability and to get to better care is essential if we're going to transform our healthcare system. Officials at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are currently working on regulations for implementing ACOs in 2012, that is less than a year from now, uh, gone, <laughs> as you know, under Medicare provisions that are going to help encourage this uh, transformation as well as uh, implementing a number of innovative pilots related to extending the ideas of accountable care through the new Center, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Leading these efforts is Dr. Don Berwick, the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. Dr. Berwick has an extensive professional history of working on ways to improve population health and improve care delivery while reducing costs, the triple aim. And for him, just like for our meeting today, this isn't just about theory. It's about getting into healthcare systems and changing healthcare delivery, changing financing, changing policies to support all that, all at the same time. Before he became the leader of CMS, Dr. Berwick was president and chief executive officer of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He was also a clinical professor of pediatrics and healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School and a professor of health policy and management at the School of Public Health. Uh, Don, it is great to have you with us today to kick off this event. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Um, thanks for your leadership and Brookings' leadership in helping us think through the healthcare system that we want to uh, uh, progress in our country. It's a constant source of ideas and uh, inspiration to me, and I want to personally thank Mark for his um, ongoing mentorship. He's a, he's a great counselor. Um, you've got a busy day ahead, and I don't want to take too much time, but I thought I would just set the stage a little bit at Mark's request uh, about where we are in the ACO world from the point of view of CM CMS, uh, and to share a little bit about my thinking and those of my colleagues at CMS about uh, the principles that underlie this, uh, this expedition that we're on. Um, I'm going to do it by zooming out first to CMS as an agency. That's the part of this story that I now know better and better while the work you're all doing plays out uh, in parallel and hopefully, hopefully in synchrony. Uh, I'm going to show you the overall CMS strategy that was launched a couple of weeks ago within the agency and then position the ACO work within that and give you some idea of how this fits into the bigger picture of the kind of work that we would like to do on behalf of our beneficiaries. Um, upon my arrival at CMS now seven months ago, uh, I began a series of conversations throughout the organization around our, our nature, and uh, it was always my intent and has been widely embraced. Now, the idea that um, CMS is more than a payer, more than an insurance organization, but rather uh, a, a um, steward and partner in American healthcare for making our healthcare system better. And so the vision statement that now guides our agency and our strategy is this, that CMS is a major force and a trustworthy partner for the continual improvement of health and health care for all Americans. That's the overarching rubric. It's a carefully phrased, a carefully constructed uh, vision 
and done in dialogue with my many wonderful colleagues there. A major force implies an agency that's proactive. We're, we're, we want to actually help cause change and synergy with you. A trustworthy partner means we cannot do it alone. The, the kind of vision that Mark was just laying out for an ACO, let alone for the healthcare system as a whole, is no longer in any single party's hands. We're going to do this together or not at all. And therefore, the agency, to my mind, has to be a, a very, very trustworthy partner, a, a breaking down barriers between the public and private sector so we can work very well together on common journeys. Continual improvement means to get out of the check-off mentality, get out of the concept that, that minima or check or just doing good enough is good enough. It isn't. We, we, the, the, the demands, the social needs in healthcare are simply too dire for us to think that way, and we're, we're really going to be in a journey of continual improvement or we can't meet the social need. Health and healthcare is a sleeper. It's a, it's a very important issue. Uh, scientifically, as you know, only 10% of the variation in health status is attributable to healthcare. The rest is either genetic or circumstantial. It has to do with risks in society, behavioral choices, the causes of illness. And I think any party now in American healthcare that is serious about achieving better care at lower cost, which is what we're serious about, is going really going to have to engage the issue of health and health production, not just health care production, more authentically. For CMS, that puts us in a partnership with other agencies, uh, CDC, uh, the Assistant Secretary for Health and others are, are actually more the lead agencies for health improvement. But, but I'm trying to orient us all together in CMS toward health, the production of better health, not just health care. And all Americans, it just means that if, if we're going to work hard to try to improve care for the 100 million beneficiaries of Medicare and Medicaid, and now the 30 million people that will end up being helped through the Office of Consumer Information uh, and Insurance Oversight, uh, it's the whole system in play. We're going to have to do this together in partnership with with the whole system, so all Americans now count, of course. Uh, I brought my prior thinking about the three-part aim, we now call it in CMS, uh, as the overarching de definition of what continual improvement is. Continual improvement of performance means three things at once. Mark referred to better care for individuals really contemplated by the Institute of Medicine crossing the quality chasm report, safe, effective, patient-centered, timely, efficient, equitable care. Better health, that's what I just talked about in terms of upstream causes of illness, and lower cost through improvement. Here is a matter of great public debate and discourse. Do we mean lower cost through withholding care if we do not? This has to do with achieving lower cost through the improvement of the care system. And I bring to my work at CMS enormous confidence that through imagination, invention, innovation, we can and we will discover ways to give care that are far better for people without holding, withholding anything at all that people want and need through the redesigned care systems. This is the CMS aim. Um, just to give you a little peek managerially inside, uh, this is what we're working on right now. The agency itself is large and, and complex and wonderful to deal with, but we, like all organizations, we have cultural challenges. There are, there are ways we have to be in order to be effective trying to help healthcare become what it can be. And so these are the five values, operating values within the organization that I'm working on very hard with my colleagues. Uh, this is linked now to performance uh, pay for senior staff and we're going to metricize it this year. And these five characteristics, just to give you a peek, are very important, I think, to setting the stage for our ability to help the way I think CMS can help. Boundarylessness, breaking down barriers within the agency between Medicare and Medicaid, between measurement functions and surveillance functions and so on, getting out of siloed thinking, much as healthcare has to do and much as ACOs should be. Speed and agility has to do with moving with the pace of social need. Unconditional teamwork is the idea of sharing resources 
at a time when resources are constrained. Valuing innovation is willingness to take risks and indeed to fail sometimes en route to better care. And customer focus means an organization that's sensitive to the people who depend on it and look that judges its own quality in terms of how the people we're trying to help, you, us, beneficiaries, providers of care, and others. We could spend a lot of time on these, but I wanted to lay out to you my general approach managerially is that values are the underpinnings to excellence. And I think the same will be true in ACOs, frankly. I once heard someone say, when values are strong, rules are unnecessary. When values are weak, rules are insufficient. And, and I think working on working on the value structure of our agency, as we would hope healthcare will do, is, is an important thing to be explicit about. Our strategic areas of focus, there are about, I think, 16 or 17 goals now on our map of strategy for 2011. Uh, they fall in these four buckets, and you'll see ACOs emerge in a minute from this framework. Uh, the first is internal. I, I, I like um, Gandhi's uh, famous quote that you must be the change you wish to see in the world. And I think that's true. And as I just said about values in CMS, I think it's true of our operations as well. If we want healthcare to be seamless, CMS has to be seamless. If we want healthcare to be agile, we have to be agile. If we want healthcare to be responsive to the people it serves, we have to do so. If we want healthcare to be simple and elegant, we have to be that way. And so there's a set of operational characteristics which would bore you for me to get into perhaps in detail, but it has to do with how we work, simplifying our rules and procedures everywhere we possibly can, working really hard on the capacity of our own workforce, the 4,500 people who work here, to improve their work, just as I would hope healthcare capacity for improving care can advance. So that's area one. Area two goes back to the IOM CHASM report, the sixth dimension, safe, effective, patient-centered, timely, efficient, equitable care. It's trying to organize a lot of CMS work around the needs of particular individual groups in care. Uh, the, the Probably the flagship here is patient safety. It's 10 or 11 years since the uh, Institute of Medicine report across uh, um, uh, to Ares Human, we don't have a lot of evidence of progress on safety systemically. We do in pieces, but not systemically. And so there's a, a one example of a goal area under area two is to work really hard on now making what, I, what I'm saying internally is bring excellence to scale. If we know how to eliminate infections in some places, let's try to do it every place. If we know how to make pressure sores go down by 95% someplace, let's do it everywhere. And there's a series of, of uh, Aims, I think it's time for us to share at quite a large level nationally, and, and there's no resistance to this. And I think you will see this year play out perhaps the largest effort in patient safety our country's ever seen. Another area in care for individuals is the amazing possibilities for dual eligibles with a new center for uh, duals. Uh, it's got a longer and more complex name, but headed by Melanie Bella, uh, fantastic leader. Uh, we can pick uh, up the needs of these 9.2 million Americans. They explain 40% of Medicare costs at a time when Medicare costs are a serious issue, and their quality isn't as what it should be. Only We estimate 100,000 duals are actually in integrated care out of 9.2 million. And so that's another area in, in improving care for individuals. The third is what we're talking about here today, if I finally get to it, and that is the concept of integrated care. I think it's the flagship. I think if I had to really come down to one area where our work intensively could help deliver on social need, it is this area, producing integrated experiences. I'll come back to that in a minute. Now, fourth area is prevention. We're going to be doing quite a bit of work this year on cardiovascular disease and prevention of heart attack and stroke in concert with CDC and others, and working on disparities. Um, uh, working now with our new office, the office soon to be set up for minority health in, within our agency, picking a few areas of disparity and concentrating on that. But let's go back to area three. That's what we're here to talk about, integration of care. 
Um, there is actually a, a flight, a, a, a fleet of, uh, of uh, innovation fronts under the Affordable Care Act, all of which have to do with the creating journeys for people instead of fragments. That's what people need. I, I'm always returning to the, the patient in my mind as a guidepost, and uh, several times in the past month I've talked about a patient. I hope I won't bore you by repeating it if you were some recent talks I've given, but it's a kid that I saw, oh, 20 years ago named Kevin. Uh, I wrote about him a number of years ago, but he's come back very much to my mind. He was 15 years old when I saw him. Kevin was a, uh, uh, well, he was doing well, but he was chronically ill. He had a, he had a uh, short, short bowel syndrome due to resection of intestine as an infant. Uh, he'd been in and out of the hospital 30 or 40 times. When I was teaching in the children's hospital, my habit was to get together with the medical students and the residents and ask them to show me a patient who had been in the hospital for a while, and I dared them to show me a patient who had not had a complication of care. I, I, I say I offered these underage students a case of wine if they ever successfully did that, but I never paid off. Uh, the, uh, so Kevin was such a case. We went to his bedside, and I said to Kevin, uh, you've been here a lot. What could be better? What, what, how, what could we do better? And uh, he, he said, nothing, you're just great. And all patients tend to say that right at the start. We're very grateful, and you're doing a good job for us. And I said, no, Kevin, I, I really mean it. You've been here a lot. Tell us what we could do better. He said, nothing. I just told you. I said, Kevin, write down what we could do better. So I said, three things. So he wrote out a piece of paper, which I kept for a while, and then, and then lost. And if you find it, uh, return it to me, please. Um, Kevin wrote three things on the paper that I distinctly remember. The first thing... The first thing he said was, um, please tell me what you're going to do to me before you do it. He, he, he was asking for anticipation. He wanted a plan. He, Kevin wanted to, to be on a journey, not, not in, in little pieces. The second thing he said was this. He said, you're, you, you got 10 doctors and 20 nurses and 30 tests. He said, you're all wonderful. Could you please talk with each other? That's what he wrote on the paper. Please talk with each other. Uh, he wanted to be, us to be a team. It was too complex, the journey he was on, for this to be done in pieces. And the third thing he said was, uh, I've been in the hospital 30 times. I actually know more about my illness than most of you do, and I certainly know more about my life than you do. Uh, he, he wrote on the paper, please ask me what I think. I kept that for a long time because I think he was telling us our job. He was saying, plan ahead, be a team, and put me in charge. Give me power. And to me, when I go back to ACOs or bundle payment or, or – or, uh, or medical homes, and I try to understand what we're doing. I just keep thinking about that kid and kids, people like him. That's what that's what area three is. That's creating journeys. Now, the law has given us this vocabulary thanks to leaders in the room, the accountable care organization, one of several options, bundle payment, medical homes, health homes, accountable care organization. What, what do we imagine here? We don't imagine, I don't imagine, the status quo repackaged. And I guess my biggest concern about ACOs might be that, that if we get it wrong, that's what will have happened. We'll have taken the status quo delivery system that doesn't serve Kevin well, today's trends, and put it under a new name. And that can't, that won't be success. That isn't meeting the social need, not better care, better health, and lower cost through improvement. We, 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 I'm viewing the accountable care organization, I hope, as new care, new care design, created, as Mark said, in a very unusual context, the context of open choice, fee-for-service payment, and, 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 and the absence, really, of restrictions which is a very bold idea, an important idea. If we do that well, Kevin will be well-served, and so will our current financial crisis in healthcare. If 
we do it poorly, it'll be the status quo renamed. The principles that would underlie this redesign are several. These are my own words. They're not in the law, and they're not necessarily how what will emerge. But first, it will put the patient in the family at the center. It will honor preferences and values and backgrounds and resources and skills at the individual level and will engage people in shared decisions about their diagnostic and therapeutic options. This will be centered around the patient, not around the care delivery. Uh, it will have a memory. Amnesia is a real problem in healthcare. When Kevin says, uh, please talk to each other, he also means remember me. He means uh, keep, keep, keep the data information together. Teamwork will now become paramount in the, in the ACO, I imagine. Uh, patients won't have to repeat their stories. They won't have to tell people to talk to each other. That will happen automatically because now the dynamics and the incentives are in place for people to be a team, which I think they want to be. The third is that handoffs will matter. That's related to that. Patients journey through the system, and we hand them off, and it's the handoffs where things tend to go wrong. It's these boundary places. The concept of the ACO would be to create a seamlessness that is real for the people who don't, who, who need us not to drop, drop the baton. Um, make a plan, said Kevin. Tell me what you need before you do it to me. That involves crafting pathways together. It will have to respect resources, better care, better health, and lower cost through improvement. All three will matter, and we need uh, agencies, agents, stewards in American healthcare understand that resource management is healthcare also. And the focus there is not on withholding care, it's on reducing waste. And so becoming sensitive to the nature of waste, wasted time, wasted effort, wasted materials, wasted supply, wasted information, wasted ideas, wasted spirit, and, and making sure that every step adds value is good for Kevin and good for meeting the social need. And, and an ACO, to my mind, is a place cognizant of that. And then it will reinvest where investment counts. Uh, we now invest in volume and throughput. The ACO will invest in value and outcome, which means resources are moved to where they're needed. And so if there's a need for a focus on anticipation, resources will go to anticipation. If there's a need for focus on Pattern recognition, resources will go there. If there's need for care at home, resources will go home. And the ability to move resources around in a cooperative mode is, is key to the, to the concept. Um, that will, by the way, have a big impact on one important agenda, which is the avoidance of unnecessary and harmful readmissions. When we drop the ball and things go wrong, people end up back in the hospital, not at home where they want to be. That involves proactivity. It means uh, not waiting for things to happen, but preventing things upstream. Uh, that allows proactive clinical management with uh, reminders and advice, keeping people healthy, keeping people aware, uh, reaching out and telling you it's time for your test, your checkup, making sure that people know how to get what they need when they need it. And all of this will depend on data richness, something Elliot and Mark have been stressing so eloquently in their work. Uh, we need daylight. Uh, and an ACO properly constructed will be able to measure and manage what's important for the patient over time and space, uh, tracking outcomes, knowing how things are going over time and space, and transparency is relevant. Uh, uh, the lights need to be on. Uh, the status quo won't do it, and so we, we're going to somehow need an ACO economy uh, in, interested in innovating, finding the better way, and there are so many options now in American healthcare for better ways. I, I'm particularly intrigued with the, the um, modern telemedicine technologies. The more I look at them, the more promise they seem to have in being able to innovate in that space. 
would help everyone, all the patients we want to help. Uh, electronic health records will need to be key. Uh, and um, so will search. I think an ACO, in my mind, would be a place that scans. We want to do better for people with short bowel syndrome. Who does the best? Uh, we want to do better for people with arthritis. Who does the best? Uh, for duels, who does the best? And that ability to scan and know is related to transparency, openness, and data. Um, and it has to attend to its workforce. Uh, I continue to believe personally that pride and joy and work are the foundation for effective work in any industry, but they're clearly the foundation in healthcare. Uh, healthcare workforce, doctors, nurses, technicians, therapists, managers who are not joyous about their ability and capacity to help people uh, can't help people, not the way they really could if they could discover the pride in their work. And, and so I think workforce development now becomes back on the screen, I hope, for the ACO, and that, that, that applies to everybody that works in healthcare. As we do this, underline this, of course, are sort of policy aims. I don't have a cogent summary, but to make this happen right, uh, more and more we're aware that things, certain touchstones need to be uh, nurtured, or whatever, that's a mixed metaphor. Touchstones need to be touched, I guess. Uh, uh, I think that concept of better care, better health, and lower cost for improvement is a touchstone. It means that, that authentic, authenticity with the ACO means simultaneous pursuit of those three, at least as a collective. Uh, pluralism and sponsorship matters. Uh, it's really clear if you, if you hear the feedback, and we've been all over the country, listening sessions, Dialogues, uh, hours and hours, days and days spent trying to hear what people are telling us. And they're saying, really what they're saying is, give me a shot. I want in. A small group practice, a small hospital, a large hospital, a teaching hospital, a specialist. Everyone kind of wants to be able to play. And I think the policy framework here will create doors, uh, opportunities for people to participate uh, from different sites. That means the, an ACO won't be one thing. It'll be, it'll be a collection of models, all of which share in common this core of, uh, that I, I just referred to. We'll have to honor guidance issues like antitrust matters, stewardship, beneficiary protections, and so on have to be mattered. And um, if we're going to use the financial mechanisms of reward for success, we will have to make sure that we know success. And that means quality measurement, quality metrics, assessment of the patient's status is the balance of to anything we do on shared savings or data sharing. That, that, that's, the, that's the safe terrain. We lose sight of that, and we bet our risk, at the patient's risk. Now, I'm in a little bit of an awkward moment, aren't I? The, national, the notice of pearls rulemaking isn't out yet. It will be out very soon. But I, I can't tell you what's in it yet, because I guess I'm not supposed to. But uh, you'll see it soon, and then there'll be a comment period, which I hope you'll all take seriously. But, of course, you know there are is issues that we're going to have to parse as we engage in this expedition toward appropriate and helpful integrated care. What will risk look like? Shared savings only? Upside, downside? Uh, partial cap, full cap? What's the, what, what would work? For whom? Who could play on each of those different conditions? And what would happen? Beneficiary protection, avoiding cherry picking. The ACO is written in the law, preserves choice. Very important idea. Protecting the ability of the patient to be powerful. Patient attribution, will it be retrospective, prospective? How will we know who's in or out of the ACO? This is not managed care. This is not a this is not Medicare Advantage. You can sign up for this if you're attributed. And how to do that is a tough issue. Measurement. Uh, how many measurements? Of what type? What's the balance between process and outcome measurement? Measurement capacity. The, the tougher the measurements get, the fewer they may be able to play. And finding that 
that sweet spot where we're measuring enough to know and protect the beneficiary, and yet measuring with enough parsimony that we're not excluding people with complexity. Uh, privacy and data sharing. Uh, what can be shared, what not? The ECO is going to want to know a lot about the people that are in it. What can they know? Are those people? Is it okay with those people for them to know? It? Getting the privacy issues correct is going to be tough. Generating capital. If it's not the status quo repackaged, then there's investment and change. Well, who can invest? Maybe large hospitals can invest. What about a small practice? How, how are we going to find the investment opportunity to create the pathway? Will there be enough security to invest? Is this going to go away in two years, and it's not worth going through the trouble of the change? Uh, the antitrust, stark issues. Uh, we have to maintain uh, integrity of markets and market forces and not let monopolistic behaviors emerge. And then there's this other very interesting and fun area of what I would call accelerated models. The 3022 rule, the core uh, NPRM, will, will be a core model. It will be what many, many can play with. But we all know there are places out there ready to surge ahead to a completely different level of integration because they've been there already or they're en route. Wouldn't it be nice if we could make space for a vanguard who could move ahead of the pack and teach us all where to go? Maybe the Innovation Center, the Center for Medicare Making Innovation, can be a home for that kind of uh, pioneering uh, element on our behalf, on everyone's behalf, not specially entitled players, but our scouts. And that's another issue and possibility that lies there. The core to me is authenticity. Uh, as I say, I think there will be parties out there who wish to take advantage of the law and the the vocabulary to relabel what they already do and repackage the status quo. I don't think that will be enough, not, not, not at scale. Uh, we're going to have to find a way to deliver care better, and that means change. And, it, and, and the question we'll be looking for as we migrate into this terrain, it seems to be, is are you really in the game? you really want to provide better care for Kevin, that lower cost to improve? Or are you simply taking what you already do and calling it something new? Because that's the game. Today. That's the question I think we'll be facing case-by-case uh, case and probably all together. Thank you again for your leadership and the chance to share these ideas with you, and I look forward to what's coming out of the rest of the day. Gosh, what an inspirational beginning to our morning. Thank you very much, Don. Um, I can't imagine a better vision for all of us, really, although we may not be able to be ma a major force, each of us. We all could be a force and a trustworthy partner for continual improvement um, of the health and health care of, of the American people. I think it's, a, it, it's not a bad model for, we're not as big as CMS, all of us, but we each can contribute in our own way. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Elliot Fisher. I'm from Dartmouth, um, and I'd like to add my welcome to you all. Uh, we have a, a wonderful morning ahead of us. Don has done an incredible goal, uh, bit of work outlining um, where we hope to go or where we could go with the ACO program. Um, as CMS advances its agenda, and our aim for this morning is really to help get concrete about some specific examples of places around the country that are doing this and focus, as Mark said, the introduction on two specific areas, um, the notion of consumer engagement, beneficiary protection, how do we make this work from the consumer and patient's point of view, um, and then the second panel really about the accountability model, the financial, financial issues. So... Our first panel really focuses on this challenge of engaging consumers and, and how we successfully partner with consumers and patients. Um, while I do the introductions, I'd like to ask our panel members to join me up here, um, and I'll introduce them as they come up. Uh, and those of you who want to jump up the, up the high step can step up there. The others who want to walk around are welcome to. Um, so to my immediate right is Deborah Ness, 
president of the National Partnership for Women and Families. Deborah will be giving about a 15-minute uh, introduction, an overview to sort of frame our discussion as, uh, as a panel. Uh, and then to her immediate right and my further right is John Rother, Director of Legislation, Public Policy, and Government Relations um, and Advocacy for the AARP. Uh, familiar to you all, I'm sure, and off far to the right in, in right field there is Jay Crossan, um, who is Associate Executive Director for the Permanente Medical Group, really running one of the large models in, in, in healthcare that we all think of as, as what we many of us see as the key elements of what an accountable care organization could be. Uh, so with that, I'd really like to ask Deborah um, to step up, make some introductory framing remarks. Great. Hello, everybody. Um, it's always a challenge to follow Don Berwick. Um, I am wearing two hats today. Um, National Partnership for Women and Families is my home, um, but also um, the National Partnership for Women and Families is the hub of something called the Campaign for Better Care, which is an, a coalition of consumer organizations, now more than 160 organizations strong, that is really dedicated to engaging in this discussion around how we make our delivery system work better. So um, the goals of ACOs, as Don just laid out, better care, uh, better health, lower costs, are shared by consumers. There's no question about that. But we're having today's conversation because we're all excruciatingly aware of the fact that if we don't do this right, Rather than consumer buy-in, we could very easily end up with consumer backlash. So I'm going to start by saying the first step we have to take is probably going to require a major paradigm shift in our healthcare system, and that is the idea that consumers and patients have to be at the table every step of the way as we try to recreate and reshape our healthcare system. That means at the policy level, that means at the design, that means at the implementation, at the governance, at the assessment, at the dissemination, and in the, and in the intermediary and education role. Um, that may sound like a tall order, um, um, but I believe that there are already places in this country that are doing it and reaping the benefits of doing so. Um, and I want to also make the distinction. Um, you'll hear me use the term consumers and patients. When I say patients, I mean patients and family caregivers. Um, but I also want to say that there is a distinction between consumer advocates and patients, and we need both at the table. They are distinct players, and they are both critically important. Um, consumer advocates are folks who understand how to advocate, who can speak for a broad group of patients, who are sophisticated players, who can sit at the tables and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with their counterpart stakeholders. Patients are folks who are seeing care up close and personal. They have information about what's working and what isn't that's not available to clinicians and staff um, that only they can deliver 
um, and it's their experience that we need to learn from. And this is not really a terribly difficult concept to understand. If you just think about the physician community, I often sit at tables with the head of the American College of Physicians or the head of the AMA, um, and I often hear folks say, but you know what, we need some real-world practitioners at this table, too. Um, so it's the same thing for patients and consumer advocates. Both have to be at the table. And to do that, I think we have to bust through some pretty entrenched myths in the system. Um, first, um, this idea that if we just build it right, they will come. Um, we've tried that before. It didn't work very well. Um, even the best of intentions, the best of ideas, if consumers aren't part of it, if they're not part of shaping it, if they don't understand it, um, we've learned that they can't uh, necessarily be expected to embrace it. Um, and I'll, I'll just give one quick example. Um, medical home, um, I know from my conversations with patients that the concepts of the medical home were extremely re resonant and, and attractive, um, but find me a patient that likes the term medical home. And I think if, medical, if patients had been at the table when the concept of medical home was in development, we probably never would have called it a medical home. Um, another thing I want to say is that um, education and social marketing campaigns are not the same as consumer education, um, as, as, as consumer engagement. Um, it's sort of like um, um, giving Mikey a bowl of spinach with whipped cream on top and saying, um, you know, eat this, you're going to like it. Um, and hoping that he doesn't notice the green stuff underneath the, uh, the whipped cream. Um, most important, I want to say that uh, patient satisfaction um, in most people's minds today still seems like something nice, but not necessarily essential. Um, people still don't understand that the patients themselves when they tell us what they want and need, are actually telling us the very things that will help them adhere to and achieve the better clinical health outcomes that we want them to achieve. And there's now ample, ample, ample um, um, uh, research showing that patient experience surveys, for example, are related to greater adherence, better clinical outcomes, lower mal malpractice risk. Um, uh, higher satisfaction on the part of clinicians um, and more energized uh, staff and clinicians. Um, it's like the story Don just told us about Kevin. Um, Kevin put his finger right on it. The things he said, I don't know how many years ago, are the things that patients still say they want the most. They want their doctors to talk to each other. They want coordination. They want communication. They want to be a part of their care planning. They want to be able to anticipate. They have a lot to teach us, and those very things that they want are things that will help us get to better clinical outcomes. Um, my fourth myth is that docs know what patients want. Um, often they do, but not always. And um, I would um, urge folks to take a look at some research that's being done by a woman named Karen Sapuka up at Mass General, who's actually looking at the disconnect between what patients think that their that what what doctors think that their patients want and is important to them in treatment versus what patients say that they want, and it's stunning to see how diametrically opposite sometimes uh, those two things are. Um, the doctors tend to focus on outcomes and survival rates. The patients tend to want to know more about side effects and risks and quality of life. Um, 
And then the final myth I think we need to get through is that patients always want everything. Now, I know all about the more is better mindset and how problematic that is. But consistently, um, there's research showing that, that docs underestimate the influence that, patient, that they have over their patient's decision-making. And we also know from shared decision-making research that when patients are presented with their options, they don't necessarily want everything. Um, in fact, they're often more conservative than their docs. So we need to break through those myths if we're going to get to what I think is the number one thing we need to do to build a model that works for patients and that patients embrace, and that is we have to have consumers and patients at the table every step of the way. But there are three other things I want to touch on. One is that we have to build these models right right from the get-go um, so that the first taste of them is in a sour taste that turns people off, which means we have to build them with the things in them that patients say that they want, and we have to build them in a way that really engage patients. The second thing I'm going to talk about is that we need real accountability, and that accountability needs to be to real patient-centric metrics so that we know that at the end of the day, we are getting achievements and uh, improvements that matter to patients. And then finally, uh, we need to not be afraid to build in the core patient protections that patients are telling us they want. We need to build trust. And if we're building better models of care, people will come. So we cannot be afraid to build in those protections. So starting with building it right, right from the get-go, um, one of the things that I'm very concerned about is that as we build ACOs, that we keep in mind that we need to make sure they have the capacity to serve the highest risk and highest cost patients. That means that they have to be built with the capability to do comprehensive team-based primary care, care management, care that is sometimes home and community-based. There needs to be a continuum of care. I worry that we are putting so much focus on what the right legal structure is, what the right financial mechanisms are, that we will forget that if you put together a bunch of providers who don't today know how to provide that intensive care management for those most complex patients, they're not going to somehow suddenly know it better when they're grouped together in an ACO. So what are the tools? What are the ways in which we're going to make sure that we build that primary care capacity? And for many of the patients that we have to serve if we want to bring down costs, and let's just, just think about it for a second, the 20% of Medicare patients that are two-thirds of the spend um, generally have at least five multiple chronic conditions. Um, they tend to see, what, 14, 15 different doctors make 30, 35 visits a year, have 50 different prescriptions. Um, sometimes they really need home-based care if we want to keep them out of the ER, if we want to keep them from um, being unnecessarily put in the hospital, if we, want to, if we want to make sure that they're not being readmitted within 30 days. Um, how are we going to build that care continuum? Uh, we know that there are models out there, models like Independence at Home programs, models like the PACE program, um, the VA, um, 
maybe one of the most mature models of, of an ACO um, um, out there, um, uh, made a decision back in 2006 to, to do home-based primary care in 140 sites. Their home care costs went up 400%, but their overall spend on those patients went down 24%, and it became the most highly rated clinical service that the VA uh, presented. And there are examples of that over and over again. Um, in order to build this continuum and this primary care capacity, uh, there's going to need to be some adequate investment, as Don said, in helping practices achieve this capability. And it's going to mean probably that there needs to be some kind of risk-adjusted payment based on complexity of patients. Um, the other thing to building these models right is making sure that we build in the right kinds of patient and family engagement right from the get-go. And I'm going to quickly run through a list and hope that we can have more conversation about these um, as part of the Q&A. Um, things like individual assessment and care planning and setting individualized goals. Things like giving people self-management support when they have chronic conditions. Um, things like shared decision-making tools. Things like linking people to the appropriate community-based services that can help them um, make take advantage of the health care and stay healthier and live independently. Um, and then I want to say that there are things, there are certain patient experience tools that we already have available to us, things like John Watson's How's Your Health tool, which are ways of combining getting feedback from patients with engaging them in care and creating a tool that the patient and the physician can come together and engage around. Um, we have these tools already at our fingertips. We need to use them. Um, and finally, I want to talk about the idea of patient and family councils. Um, um, they're being built in now to some medical homes. Um, if any of you are familiar with this very exciting initiative in Camden, New Jersey, a Medicaid um, ACO initiative in Camden, New Jersey, you'll know that um, part of the governance of that initiative requires two um, voting consumers from community-based organizations as part of the process of governing that ACO and community-based involvement in how the shared savings get put back into improving care in the communities. So engaging consumers um, in, in helping to advise and design. Um, at the hospital level, we're seeing similar things. Patient councils, we're seeing hospitals that are saying we're no longer doing rounds in the hallway. We're going to do them in the patient room with the patients and the families at the bedside. We're going to involve patients in shift changes. Um, there are lots of ways we can engage patients as we go along. Accountability is my second point. Um, accountability means strong measures to tell us whether or not we're getting where we want to go. And if there's one takeaway from my comments today, it's that at the top of the list of accountability measures should be patient experience measures. Only patients, um, through their experience of care and through telling us about their outcomes, their functional status, will be able to tell us whether or not ACOs are making care better for them. And that should be a sine qua non right from the beginning. We have the tools. They may not be perfect, but we can start using them. And I hope that eventually we get to a place of having a CAP survey, for example, that is specific to ACO use. 
Um, you all know the other kinds of measures we need. We need measures of outcomes and functional status and, and coordination and, and cost and appropriateness of use and safety for sure. Are we also going to make sure that ACOs comport with meaningful use criteria? If we want information at the fingertips, if we want to be able to use HIT to help engage patients, we need to. Um, and are we eventually going to get to a place where we have measures of whether or not ACOs are actually engaging patients? Are they using shared decision-making? Are they doing individualized care planning? Are they linking patients to community services that can help them? Are they creating patient and family councils? Those are the kinds of measures that will tell us down the road whether we're really engaging patients. And finally, whatever measures we use, we need to, from the get-go, build the capacity to stratify those measures by race, ethnicity, language, gender, disability, socioeconomic status, because we need to be able to monitor the impact of ACOs on different populations and make sure we're addressing and reducing, not exacerbating disparities. My final section is on patient protections. And um, uh, I know this one this is one an area that makes people see. Um, uh, CMS has been very clear that um, uh, patients are not going to get locked in, which is one of the biggest fears that patients have, the loss of choice of provider or being locked into a network that's inadequate. Um, but we are strong proponents of full transparency, which has to mean also prospective assignment. Uh, patients have the right to know how their care is going to change. Patients have to have the right to know whether or not there are financial incentives that might affect the kinds of care recommendations that their um, providers make to them. Um, and how else are we going to engage patients if they don't know um, and they're not really full partners in this? Um, and we need to make sure that patients have transparent quality and cost information if we want them to make uh, better decisions. So full transparency, prospective assignment, I think, are critical patient protections. Flexibility, not lock-in. Adequate networks. Um, and the creation of some kind of an ombuds or appeals process is essential. Patients need to know there's some place they can go if they feel that they're not getting the care that they should or that their, their provider is recommending um, um, care that's not necessarily in their best interest. Where do they go? They need to know there's a safety valve. There's an opportunity for a second opinion. There's an opportunity if they have a certain kind of condition to go to the best place in the country to get the care that they need. And finally, patients deserve a return on the savings. And how that's done, uh, there are lots of different ways. But in that Camden, New Jersey example I gave you, um, there's a requirement that um, the way that those savings are spent in the ACO have to include community input. And um, in a recent um, 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 uh, experience in that project, they went back to um, one of the um, areas they were serving and they had a conversation with, with residents in a very large project that was um, responsible for much of the, the spend in the, in the healthcare services. And they said, okay, we have this much money and here's a range of things we can do with it. And what do you think we should do with it? And they, they voted to put a nurse practitioner in that project, um, which um, um, we'll see will probably end up being the decision, but we'll see. Uh, but they had a say and they own it. They own that project. So 
One of the areas that I get asked a lot is how do you notify patients if you want open um, full transparency and prospective assignment, what are the best ways to notify um, patients? Um, I'm going to put th a three-pronged approach on the table. Um, uh, I think, number one, the ACO needs to notify people in a way that describes what's going to change, what the benefits are, and what the protections and responsibilities of beneficiaries are. I think that piece probably has to be standardized and approved by CMS, but I think most of the rest of it probably has to be unique to the ACO since there's going to be a lot of variation. I think CMS has a role in notifying beneficiaries. I think they need to put out information that will lay out what are the benefits, what people can expect, what are the protections, what are the rights, what are the responsibilities. And finally, the best way for patients to learn and hear about um, ACOs and what it can do for them would be through individual conversation with their trusted physician. Um, and if we want to get to that level, then we need support for the physician so that they know how to deliver that information in an effective way um, and how to engage patients in that conversation. And finally, whatever we do on the notification front, I hope we focus group it and we test it with real consumers and patients because we've learned that we speak a language that doesn't necessarily resonate outside our um, policy circles and we can't keep making that mistake. So with that, I hope I've uh, provoked um, some ideas for conversation. Uh, thank you very much. Laid out a, a number of challenges. Let me let me first come to Jay. Um, a lot of a lot of um, specific requests of care organizations, essentially these ACOs to be. What are what are your perspectives on on uh, on what we've just heard and what we should be doing? Well, thanks, Elliot. Um, first of all, I'd like to I'd like to say um, you know you mentioned Kaiser Permanente as an example of an ACO, and I think that's correct. Although I have to say, we actually had a meeting last week. Uh, to, to internally to discuss whether we should say we're an ACO or not. And uh, we haven't figured that out yet, but we, we did sort of decide that we'd kind of wait to see how this whole thing turns out. Right. And then, that's and, fair. Um, so, well, and, and to be fair, I, wouldn't, I would call you a proto-ACO. Okay, okay. Right. Thank so, you. Thank you. Yeah, um, as, and we need a little more transparency right. and accountability in the, in the context of this discussion. Right. The, other, um, the other point I wanted to make is uh, that we're, we're going to talk about I'm going to talk about a little bit about um, transparent about engagement rather uh, in an ACO, uh, consumer engagement in an ACO. I think there's another topic here that we're going to probably need to talk about, and that's consumer engagement on ACOs. And what I mean is, what comes first? Because Deborah talked a little bit about a medical home, and we did a survey in a project that uh, you know about uh, of consumer attitudes towards different words, and uh, and we used uh, medical home and the uh, uh, and as Deborah said, people don't like it. And the comment we got back, which I remember from one participant, was, oh, I know what a medical home is. Yeah. Uh, first you go to a, uh, a medical home, then you go to a nursing home, then you go to a funeral home. <laughs> so I hope we can do a little better uh, with ACOs. Um, I'm not sure. I did want to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of points uh, here, and I think uh, Deborah mentioned a couple of them, at least with respect to our own organization. The first thing is governance, because I do think it makes a difference when you're running an organization 
who is running it and what decisions they're making and whether those decisions that they're making apply to them as individuals and to their families. And that's something that we've tried to stick to. So uh, with respect to our health plan and hospital organization where we have a, a board of community individuals, uh, these are mostly community leaders, former uh, CEOs of corporations and the like, uh, those individuals, except for a few who have moved subsequently uh, out of area, those individuals receive their health care from Kaiser Permanente, as do all of our physicians uh, and all of our employees and all of their family members. So in a sense, uh, the, the, governing, the people who govern our organization and the people who deliver care within our organization are all consumers. And our belief is that uh, in the end that makes a, a, a bit of difference in terms of the direction of policies. I want to talk a little bit about the issue of continuity and coordination. A number of uh, surveys, including the one I mentioned earlier, and I, I know Deborah had this uh, also in the paper that she's written recently, um, emphasize at least the perspective of consumers about the importance of the physician-patient relationship. Um, and, and in our organization, I'm talking here about Kaiser Permanente in general, but primarily in Northern California, where I have practiced and worked for over 30 years, uh, the notion of uh, an ACO or an organization um, making the investment to make sure that that relationship is strong is vitally important, particularly in a large organization that can be viewed as impersonal. So we work very hard on linking members to the new control members, new patients to physicians. We now have 98% um, at any given time, prevalence of 98% linkage between uh, an individual patient and a primary care physician, mostly primary care physician. That takes a lot of work. We do outreach uh, at least three times over the first 60-day period, um, and then we have um, a, a website for every single one of our physicians, which is available um, to our patients, um, so that they can access and see a picture of and read information about every one of our physicians, and they're free, of course, uh, to move at any time from one physician um, to the other. Um, the third thing I'd like to talk a little bit about what Meredith Rosenthal called recently in a, uh, an article in the England Journal, um, between visit care. And that's predicated on the notion that most health care is delivered in doctor uh, office visits. Now, that's going to change. I think we know that. But the whole issue of engaging the consumer in self-management is often uh, as much about what goes on in the doctor's office or in the hospital as it is what goes on between those two things. And, and organizing that systematically now increasingly through the use of technology is extremely important. Uh, so we have, uh, with our clinical information system and the interactive uh, capability that we've developed, um, the ability for uh, our uh, patients to see their laboratory values the instant that they're finished. So the instant that they are finished in the laboratory, the laboratory computer, computer hooks up to the Internet the accessibility to our patients, and they see the lab results uh, sometimes even before the physicians. Same thing with medications, um, uh, not only the uh, medications that are on, but the advice uh, from the physician about how to use them. Um, and we have invested highly uh, recently in uh, the ability of our patients to directly contact physicians by email. Uh, so we have uh, email your doctor, and all of our members who have email capability uh, can send a message to their physician uh, any time of night or day. This is this is above and beyond emergency care and uh, urgent care, which is available seven by twenty-four. But to get to that individual physician 
uh, by email. Uh, we now have uh, that available. The majority of answers come within 24 hours, and we're well over 90% within 48 hours. So that's a level of, I mean, you can think of that as, well, maybe this is impersonal, right, you know, email. But I'll tell you, for busy people, they just love it, the ability to connect with the, uh, with the physician and get an answer in a relatively short period of time to questions small and large is extremely important and connects, uh, as Deborah was saying earlier, the real needs of the person to the mind of the physician or nurse practitioner who's taking care of that person. And this is doable. Um, it's, we do this in the rest of our lives. I mean, it's a surprise is that you can't do this for the most part uh, with your own physician. And the final point I'd just like to make is about accountability. Uh, again, as Deborah said, exceptionally important. The patient experience is the key to this. How do we do that? Um, for, uh, for our physicians, um, every quarter, uh, at least 100 um, survey questionnaires are sent out to patients who were seen within 48 hours of the time they were seen by email um, or, or by um, uh, regular mail. Um, now, you think about that. We have 7,000 physicians in our medical group in Northern California. That's 700,000 questionnaires sent out every three months. Um, we get response rates between 40 and 75%. It has questions not just about the care of the physician, but the nurses, um, the, the staff, uh, everything with respect to that uh, office visit. And we use that information, that experience rating for the physician as the key measure of reward um, for that physician, both in terms of recognition by peers as well as um, substantial reward over the career of that physician. Um, that's a tremendous investment in time and energy, uh, but the physicians see not only the scores, but they see the written uh, comments from patients, uh, and they see that uh, every three months. Uh, so those are just a couple of uh, practical issues uh, about one organization that may or may not be an ACO, um, but has been around for a long time and has tried uh, through investment and through technology uh, to connect the consumer in this context, the patient, uh, more closely to the system. That's great. Thank you. John, great to have you with us. What are, what's your perspective from, from where you sit looking across the, the scope of what's happening to all of I guess everyone in the room must be a member, right? I mean, not, not quite. There are a few young people up front here, but most of us are your members as well. Welcome members and future members. <laughs> uh, I'd like to start off by uh, thanking you and Mark for the leadership that uh, you brought to this whole issue. I don't think we'd be, not only wouldn't we, we be here today, but the whole movement wouldn't be uh, nearly as far along without it. And I'd also like to recognize the extraordinary leadership that Don Berwick has brought um, to our public programs, and uh, we are fortunate to have that. Um, I think Deborah really covered uh, most of the issues. I'm going to uh, just emphasize a few. And I'm going to refer to uh, an extraordinary article that many of you may have seen in the New Yorker by Atul Gawande just a couple of weeks ago called Hotspots. And I, if you haven't seen it, I certainly recommend it uh, because it's a more in-depth treatment of some of the concepts we're talking about here. So I'd start off by saying um, that what we are talking about is culture change. And culture change is uh, changes in behavior on both sides of the relationship. It's a change in behavior by 
the treating team, but it's also a change in behavior by the patient and the patient's family. And I uh, want to lift up uh, Deborah's phrase of uh, patient and family as uh, the key concept here. We're not just talking about one-to-one -one relationship, but uh, multiple interactions. Um, so the key to uh, making this all work is uh, trust. And then uh, the goal of that trusting relationship is a change in behavior. Now, it doesn't have to be the physician. I think one of the things that we've learned um, in um, Geisinger and some of the other um, plans that have moved this along is that it's often uh, other people in the office who are the keys, uh, whether it's a nurse, a social worker, or something um, like a community kind of health coach who's in frequent contact uh, with the person. Now, uh, to change behavior, to change the behavior of the treating system and the, ch and the behavior of the patient, particularly those with multiple chronic illnesses where most of the um, money goes, uh, is not a matter just of information. Uh, information is crucial. It's the basis of uh, shared decision-making, but you're not going to get a change of behavior without the patient understanding uh, what the benefits and risks are and why uh, that change in behavior is a necessary or good thing. And so uh, shared decision-making based on trust is absolutely key to this whole concept um, going forward. So I think that that's uh, probably the most difficult thing. Uh, it's not so much a matter of organizational design as it is finding the right people to deliver the care. And I think that not all doctors are going to be able to do this. Uh, we have to acknowledge that uh, to really be committed, as Don said, uh, you, you have to have the right attitudes. And this is going to be um, a process of sorting through who can actually rise to this uh, challenge of um, uh, a relationship based on trust, a change in behavior, a team approach, and then, of course, being accountable uh, for the results. Uh, I think there's great promise in accountable care. I think the examples we've seen uh, in different places around the country are quite promising, but it does take um, kind of extraordinary leadership. Uh, it doesn't just happen because of the uh, changing financial incentives. Uh, it does take a um, real commitment to the culture change. So um, are patients and their families ready for this? Uh, I think uh, the people who are the most ready are the highest users of the system. They are consistently the most critical of their health care is the people who are in the hospital a lot, those with multiple chronic diseases, those who fully experience the fragmented system that is so characteristic of much of American health care, um, so that they are open to this. But they need to be um, full partners in a new approach. And that partnership, again, based on trust, based on full disclosure and information, based on shared decision-making, and based on a um, holistic uh, commitment to a patient-centered approach where you're not just looking at the medical encounter, but you have to look at the patient's entire 
situation, uh, their family situation, their living situation, um, if you're going to focus on health, not just health care. So uh, that's ambitious. Uh, that's very ambitious. But the places that are starting to do this seem to be um, showing some real results. But it, it's, uh, it's not a simple thing to reorient an entire profession. And it's not a simple thing to reorient uh, consumers and patients. So I think um, having this work is going to involve all of the things that we've talked about, but it's also going to involve just one-on-one -on -one relationship building uh, between the care team, between the patients and their families, and uh, that's that's the hardest work of all. Mm, great, thank you. So, the challenge of engaging consumers on ACOs, uh, Deborah J. just uh, cast you a challenge, I think. Um, how are we going to? Maybe we've chosen the wrong name, the you know mea culpa, um, to those of us who were all in the room when it came up. Um, but how are how should we be engaging consumers? How should we how should CMS be thinking over the next month or two and rolling out the, the educational program? Change the name? You know, what are your what are, what is your research been showing you? Well, what I understand Jay meaning when he says on ACOs as opposed to in ACOs is um, really the the piece of engagement I referred to as involving the consumer advocacy community in the policy development and the shaping and the designing and redesigning of our delivery system. And I, I have to give this administration very high marks for the work that it's been doing to do that. Um, um, Berwick, Don Berwick is um, as good as his word. His, his, um, his focus on patients um, extends to um, a pretty open door policy at CMS and the Innovation Center and a, a, an anxiousness to hear what it is the consumer community thinks needs to be built into these models. So on that front, I believe we have an open um, administration and I think we have an increasingly active com consumer community that's educated and sophisticated and wanting to engage on these issues. Um, I also want to say that in what I think of as the quality measurement enterprise writ large, of which I think um, um, the Engelberg Center and the Quality Alliance Steering Committee that Mark co-chairs, um, groups like the National Quality Forum and the National Priorities Partnership, um, these are groups, multi-stakeholder groups that have been grappling with quality and delivery system reform. Um, they have all welcomed consumer participation and made that a central, um, a central element of um, the way they build consensus. So in my mind, working together in these multi-stakeholder venues, both um, um, with private sector healthcare providers as well as with the public sector, it's a way to get the consumer community engaged on PCOs. And for the consumer community, I don't think you have to change the name. What we call it to the to the real world, to, to ordinary people, that's that's what we call it. Yeah, no, we, a couple of focus groups that we ran with another organization had people thinking about accounts when they thought we used the term ACO. Um, so, you know, we may want to, and whether our Tucson ACO really wants to be called a taco is a is is, 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 is an open question. Well. Um, so, but when we get to engaging consumers in ACOs, I mean, Deborah, you had, you had raised the question about how to notify how to notify consumers in our our uh, 
I would say that our California pilots are pretty far along in a model that has joint notification of those who are in a fully attributed model. No lock-in, this is their PPO health plan. Joint notification through a letter that goes to the, to the, to the patients um, from the ACO and from um, the payer with a follow-up letter that's going to come from the primary care physician, the development of a website that gives them tools to get access to care, and, and well, well fully described that you're not locked in to go anywhere, but we're trying to build these resources for you, including the care navigator for the, you know, for the complex patients. So it is trying to, the way they're approaching it is recognizing this, you know, this isn't going to be about taking things away from people. The way this is going to be attractive is by making it attractive. This is providing additional support. I'm not sure how far we're getting, and you know, there probably is much more in terms of consumer engagement on governance committees that can be on governance boards. Are you, are there patients involved in many of the, aren't there patients involved in many of the activities at, at Kaiser, you know, as in the safety safety work, or giving, having a patient tell a story that motivates it? I'm trying to remember the things I've heard. We, we, we do do that, but I, as I said, I think that the, the primary thing is that, you know, we're all patients. Well, everyone on the governing board, all the doctors, all the doctors' families um, are, are, are patients. So, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a circular question as to who's a consumer. We, we, you know, we're, we're the consumers of our own, uh, of our own product. I, I, I would just like to make one other comment. I, I agree completely with what Deborah said about, um, you know, this question of organized um, consumer representatives and, and um, understanding and participating in the creation of ACOs. But I do think... But there's another issue there that Don touched on in his comments, which is perhaps more fundamental. It goes back to this question of, you know, what do people hear when they hear the word ACO? Or in this case, um, isn't there in the concept of an ACO, certainly I think that's what Don said, the notion that there's something in this about managing the future cost of healthcare? And and how do, you know, how, I mean, as best I can tell, everybody who writes about it says, this is not just about quality. It is about quality, but it's also about trying to deal with the problem the country has in terms of escalating healthcare costs. Um, and if that's in there, as it is, um, how do we help people understand that and help people understand it in the way that Don explained it today, which is this is fundamentally about how to reduce the cost of healthcare, at least the escalation, the continued increases in the cost of healthcare in the United States by making care better, by making it more accessible, by making it more uh, efficient in the right way, uh, and, and focusing in the way that uh, Dr. Gawande suggested in his article, focusing on those uh, individuals where a little bit of investment uh, provides a great deal of return, not, not just improvement in their health, but improvement in the overall cost. And I, I'm afraid unless we find a way of conceptualizing that and engaging people more broadly on that fundamental notion, then, then this whole idea could be hijacked uh, purposely or inadvertently and made to look like things in the past that people were suspicious of. I hope that's not the case. John? I think most consumers um, are anxious to avoid a repeat of the managed care backlash. And so uh, presenting uh, this primarily as cost savings is not the way to do it. Uh, although that should be a goal. Um, but from an individual patient point of view, um, keeping you out of the hospital and providing more services at home is very attractive. And of course, that's the key to, to the cost containment anyway. So um, you know, one of the tensions, though, with, with this model is that uh, it's going to be hospital-based, it seems. 
often. And so, uh, you know, how committed are hospitals to lowering their their volume? It and, comes to uh, that great question of authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> it comes to the question of authenticity. Um, and performance measures, perhaps. Sarah? Yeah, I, I, I think John is absolutely right. You, you can't lead with the discussion of the um, cost-cutting um, um, goals of, of this model. But when we've talked with patients, and we've done a lot of method research um, to figure out how to engage people in this conversation, there are lots of strands you can pick up on and get them to this place. So, for example, people say to us, you know, I want a, a doctor or, or a clinician who really knows me, knows me as a person, and knows enough about me that their recommendations will make sense in my particular life. In that Statement. There are a lot of things. There's this idea that they know that the same thing doesn't necessarily work for every patient and that that gets directly to the more is always better mindset. Um, there's a recognition that when a doctor doesn't really know you and instead you're seeing 14 different specialists and everybody's looking at a different body part, they talk about the fact that that leads to misdiagnoses, um, duplicate tests and procedures. They talk about it in terms of, of their own money, uh, co-pays, wasted. They talk about it in terms of burden, talk to caregivers about the burden of, of unnecessary procedures and duplicate tests. They talk about the, the idea of wanting their doctors to talk to each other. That, that may be the sine qua non most, most often um, 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 complaint that we hear, that one doctor doesn't talk to another doctor, and as a result, I have to make so many more visits, and they don't reconcile my medications. I, I, you know, I think I'm taking more medications than I need to take. So I think that there are ways to get this frame so that people understand the reduction of waste and duplication and burden and even cost. Yeah. And Elliot, if I was going to name this, I'd name it um, coordinated care organization. I, I think accountable, uh, I mean, accountable is great for policy, but it, it's not for policy. No, I think I wouldn't, I'm with you. <laughs> I see another article coming. Oh, no, we've written enough. It's time to get going, as Don said. Um, so one of the one of the big issues that's been talked about a lot is this issue of you know patient attribution assignment lock in you know some people are saying we ought to we ought to um, allow patients to to choose as opposed to informally attributing them some thoughts on that I mean I, I, we've got some pilot sites that are doing some interesting things but I'd love to hear your thoughts about benefit attribution versus sign up and how we should be thinking about that. Well, if we're really uh, going to be patient-focused, that means the patient gets to make some decisions. And so, therefore, this needs to be a voluntary situation. And one thing I think that distinguishes it from capitated models is the ability to choose to go outside if needed. Absolutely. But, of course, what we all want is for it to be so attractive to the patient that they uh, buy into it in a, in a committed way. But uh, again, that's part of the shared decision-making. Uh, that really does need to be voluntary, or I do think we, we risk reenacting the kind of backlash that we're all trying to avoid. But interestingly, the attribution models, for instance, Advocate in, uh, in Chicago is using a monthly attribution model to let, you know, let patients and primary care physicians know who, you know who we think your primary care physician is um, so that we can reach out and take care of you. I mean, the, the, the notion that primary care physicians would actually be told who their 
patient, who they think their patients are, is, is I think a pretty promising step toward from where we were, which was, you know, 20 years ago or when I, five years ago when I was last practicing. You know, I knew the patients I'd seen, but I wasn't sure whether they thought of me as their primary care physician or not, or whether there was any, you know, any recognition of who was responsible or who the other physicians were. Um, so even the attribution can be useful in that sense. Um, what do you think, how would you, um, I'm going to take one more, I'll do one more question and we'll open it up for some questions. So get your pen, sharpen your pencils, think about what you want to, want to ask us. Um, what do you think about the performance measurement? How, how, you know, are, really it's a question to you, Deborah. If we, if we start with strong, um, you know, the next version of CAPS, the ACO CAPS, um, is that going to be, you know, sufficient to hold these, hold, you know, if, if we're doing it on, the organization or in every position, is that going to be sufficient or what? How would you think about that? Well, I think patient experience is going to be critical to telling us uh, whether or not we're improving care for patients. Um, I think we need a number of vehicles to do that. I think you need validated, uh, standardized survey instruments, um, and I would like to see us develop an ACO-appropriate CAP. So I'd like to see us uh, develop an adapted version for use in this model. Um, and I think we need to be able to trend, compare, um, and give that information back to patients and give that information back to the providers of care. Mm -hmm. But I also think there's a need for real-time qualitative feedback as well. You know, Jay talked about a system that provides feedback much more rapidly to um, to your your clinicians um, than... Are you transparent on that? Do you publish that? Each individual's scores? Or is it shared within the physicians? It's shared among the physicians. They know, but we don't, no, we don't mail it out. We'll work on it. Yeah, but, but what let's, I'm saying is, is you need both. Um, you need the, the standardized information that becomes available to the public, but to, to the patients, but you also need the kind of real-time feedback, and that can be more qualitative feedback. It can be more flexibly obtained. There are lots of different models for doing that, but that's the information that can be used to help practitioners immediately improve their practice, and that's the kind of information that actually doctors and patients could engage around. So I feel like we need both of those. I also feel like we need um, to, to, to push ourselves toward measures of patient-reported functional status. Yeah, I would, you know, the, we, are, we at Dartmouth we're, have been doing this for, for 10 years in Jim Weinstein's Spine Center where, you know, patients complete a tablet or an online survey that, about their functional status. It's presented at the time of the visit with, and talked about with the clinician. Um, and then reassessing, and the, pa the patients love it because they actually see something about themselves. Right. The providers, you know, initially said, I don't want that, and after about three months with it, they said, I'm never going back. Right. Um, and that, those kinds of information systems, as the Beacon program rolls out and the HIT gets more advanced, are going to be, are going to be possible you know, and accelerate the improvement and the sense of engagement, I think. Just um, a little footnote on this. Uh, I think we should uh, measure uh, patient experience and self-outcome as functional status. Uh, but it's also important to show patients that we're actually going to use the key and have uh, demonstrated commitment to be responsive. Um, otherwise, you lose credibility and you lose that authenticity. 
Yeah. And anecdotally, I think we hear all the time that the places that are doing this, the patient satisfaction right. um, goes way up, but the clinician satisfaction goes way up. People get excited, and then um, <clears throat> actually they're proselytizing the, the merits of involving their patients in, in the care process. Yeah, the, the, there are some technical issues that need to be overcome to make it accessible everywhere, but I think those those are increasingly, yeah. those barriers are falling yeah. as, as meaningful use you know, extends this. Well, let's open this up for, for about uh, 10 minutes of questions from the audience. We have a, we have mics wandering around. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, let's have the folks with mics come forward. Um, and let me see, why don't I start from the front here? I don't, I'm afraid I don't know everybody's names. Mark probably does, but I'm just from the sticks of Vermont. Hi. Yeah, introduce yourself if you could and then, sure, and then ask your um, This is Tiff Ghosh from Strategic Health Resources. Um, to echo Dr. Borwick's comments um, this morning, uh, there's provisions in the Affordable Care Act specifically on reduction of healthcare disparities. So as the movement for accountable care grows, um, and you're talking about consumer engagement, especially for chronic conditions, it's really important to understand not only diversity, but the diverse needs of patients. So if you can comment, Deborah and others, on how does reduction of healthcare disparities uh, for heart failure, for diabetes, um, which are key conditions. Um, well, one of the things I said in my opening comments was that all of our measurement work needs to be stratified so that we can monitor the impact on different populations. That, that, that's a given. Um, the patient engagement work, the interaction with the, with the care community needs to be culturally sensitive. It needs to be sensitive to health literacy levels. Um, needs to be sensitive to disabilities. And I think we have a long way to go. And, and this has to extend it every step in the process from how we notify people. Um, those materials have to be culturally appropriate to actually the patient engagement tools that we use, whether it's shared decision-making tools or um, whether it's um, um, self-management support tools. All of those have to be made culturally appropriate. So if I could just add, I think one of the keys would be um, hiring um, supportive staff from the communities who can uh, relate um, directly to uh, the entire diversity of population served. And I think there are also, you know, um, structural and investment issues here because, uh, you know, the question is wh where in this ACO transformation is the role for dish hospitals, federally qualified health centers, and the like, where a fair portion of this right. care is delivered. And I think, <clears throat> um, I think, I know there's a lot of activity going on trying to think about that, but I don't know necessarily that anybody has a clear notion of where the money is going to come from, where the expertise is going to come from, and the like. And I think in the absence of that, you know, we could end up having this very valuable idea serve only to further widen the gulf um, of care that exists that we have. Yeah. I one other thing I want to say, the article that John referred to by Atul Gawande, um, Hot Spotters, um, talks about the Camden experience and the team that they use. And it's very interesting because in addition to the physician and the nurse practitioner and the, and the social worker, they have a whole slew of health coaches that are modeled after the Promotora model. And these are folks from the community who actually speak the language of the people in the community understand them, 
and actually have more success in helping to change health behavior than any of the other players in that team. Yeah, I think it comes to a couple of things. One is about new payment models that enable those those provide those practitioners to be supported, um, and you know, and then some tools that let them actually do the work, uh, like you know, as Jeff Jeff's article. I mean, the article about Jeff and also his much of his stuff, I, I believe, is available online in terms of the Medicaid um, HCO work that he's developed in New Jersey. It's really quite a promising. It'll also come back to the risk adjustment issue that we'll talk about right in the next panel, which is in, in addition to a new payment model, you need to be able to make sure you're not disadvantaging systems that are taking care of the highest need populations. And I'm pretty confident CMMI will be, you know, will be, will, some of that, I would hope, that that early rollout of innovations in, in, in ACO models um, over the next year the Vanguard will include some Vanguards that are dealing with dual eligibles and dealing with dealing with those populations. Let's have a couple more questions, Cindy. Yeah, great. Gary uh, <clears throat> Christopherson, former VA DOD CMS. Uh, well, first, a big lot of applause for Don and what he's doing up there. I mean, the gurus he's using the phrase and the vision, very key to where we want to try and go, where CMS needs to go as an organization. Uh, Don was right in one thing, the focus needs to be on health, and I think that's one thing we're missing by the ACO concept is we're on the care side, not on the health, health status, functional status side of the equation. But there's another part where words are very important, and the word we still don't get quite right. Uh, you've used consumer, you've used patient, yeah. you may use member, you may use beneficiary, whatever. Uh, what we came to both in DOD and VA, much more was the term person, it's about people, because what you get into in the patient side is you get to them too late. It's after they show up and they're sick. If you look at the consumer, it kind of gives us sort of mistaken notion about what their role is. If you talk to people, they understand what people are and what persons are, very association, retired, et cetera, and so forth there. So the question I think really comes back to there, if we really believe that's about people before they are patients, when they are patients, after they are patients, and it's not just about consuming health, but it's about behavior, prevention, and those things. How do we get the right terms in here, and how do we get them to be consistently used? Great, great question. I would say that I, I think the measure we're missing um, in terms of both ACOs and medical home is a measure of health risk you know, that could you know, capture the burden of avoidable morbidity and mortality that a population has so that we could hold medical homes, ACOs, um, accountable um, for improving the health of those that they're through measurement, um, and I, th I think there's some promising work on the horizon that should be should be coming out in a couple of months. Other questions? Yeah, we might as well march. Oops, Cindy, I'm letting you control this mic inside. I can't see all the way back. Yes. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Poplin. I'm a primary care physician. Um, the problem that I see is that in order to have um, uh, a patient-centered decision-making or shared decision-making and the trust that's so important, that requires time. Um, and what we are judged by, in addition to all these other these new things, our success, outcomes, we're judged by productivity. That's what is called inside the ACO. Even at Kaiser, it used to be 12 minutes a visit, five patients an hour. Now you're down to 20 minutes to visit three patients an hour. And in addition, we have to return all the, the, the phone calls and the emails. Um, 
subspecialists don't have to do any of this, or at least they have more time and less to do and less supervision. It's the primary care physicians at the bottom who are supporting the whole superstructure. What is happening is that medical students looking at the situation are voting with their feet and becoming procedural subspecialists, which is where the big cost driver is. You haven't mentioned anything about any of this. Well, let me say a couple of things and then, or actually, Jay, I'll let you, you want to answer that? I mean, I think it's an excellent point. You know, there are many things that could derail all these good ideas that we've talked about today. We talked about consumer attitudes perhaps being one. Another one is just what you mentioned, which is that at least with respect to adult primary care, the pipeline is running dry. And it's running dry because of payment disparities or inequities or whatever you want to call that, which have developed over 20, 30 years. But also, as you point out, because the workload of particularly internists and family medicine physicians has become greater as the average age of the population they're caring for has gone up. Many physicians now see patients every day in their 90s and some patients in their hundreds with multiple, multiple problems. And then, although electronic technology, such as I described earlier, is wonderful, it can also be cumbersome, actually, and take more time at least. So we have a problem in the country, which is if we're going to have this model, we've got to have and get to what I talked about, which is 98% linkage between patients and their physicians. We've got to have the physicians to do that, or we're going to have to transform primary care away from physicians to other caregivers or the like. And I think the solution for that is very complicated. It's going to involve, I think, some significant changes in how physicians are paid, perhaps starting with Medicare. And I think it's going to have to involve, I think, changes in practice style and perhaps more team-based care and other things that will, in fact, make the life of future primary care physicians tolerable and satisfying. And we're not anywhere near there yet. Although I think there certainly are glimmers. I'd add two things. One is there are glimmers of hope from the redesign that the experience of primary care physicians, whether it's practicing advising or group health, I mean, they're medical home pilots where they were transformed in ways that led to much higher levels of patient satisfaction. And talk to Jeff Brenner about how excited he is about his work and his colleagues when they're in that kind of team model of care. I think the second thing I would just, from my Dartmouth Atlas perspective, would say that there's no correlation between supply and this perception of scarcity or workload. I think it's about places with many, many more primary care physicians. The physicians feel just as overworked and just as disorganized care as where there are fewer primary care physicians. So it's not probably about how many. I think it's about how we work. It's about how we organize care, how we deliver care, new models of care that probably offer some promise, and maybe the new payment models in these coordinated care organizations will enable us to support primary care more adequately. And I think we're starting to see that. We should now wrap up this panel. I will say that there is a 15-minute break. I want to thank our panelists for joining me up here and for their spectacular comments. Thank you all. Thank you all. Okay, that's going to end the experiment for today. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have. Incredible insights there, not the least of which was the suggestion that uh, we're talking coordinated care organization at heart versus the accountable 
care organization as originally or originally envisioned. So we're going to close this out. I do want to uh, shout out to the Brookings Institution. Uh, I have published in the description on this show in at acowatch.com. Uh, a link at acowatch.com, but also in the program description at blogtalkradio.com forward slash acowatch, full credit, and original linkages to the Achieving Better Care at Lower Costs through Accountable Care Organizations program that Brookings um, that Brookings hosted. It's just a superb program, and there's more to it. Uh, we'll continue this um, at a latter time. But also check acowatch.com. There'll be links as well as summaries from some of the key takeaways. <clears throat> and perhaps what's most interesting uh, is you want to um, uh, check out the complete transcript of the event, which is also posted on the site, uh, www.brookings.edu forward slash events and select Achieving Better, Better Care at Lower Cost Through ACOs. And on the very bottom of that, you will see a link for the complete transcript. I'm looking at it right now. The uncorrected transcript, it's PDF form. Grab that super material. So that's it for today. Joining me next week, I'm very excited to announce that uh, I will have Dr. Kevin M. Fickenshire, uh, also known on Twitter as at MDKev. And we will talk about uh, a blog post he made some time ago, which we republished on acowatch.com, called ACOs versus Medical Homes. Is there a difference? Question mark. Dr. Fickenshire serves as a strategy, development, and thought leadership officer for Dell Healthcare Services on an international basis. Prior to his current position at Dell, Dr. Fickenshire served as the vice president for the International Healthcare division at Perot Systems, which was acquired by Dell in November 2009. Dr. Fickenshire is a physician executive and leader with extensive experience in strategic and operational development in complex healthcare organizations. He's provided leadership for various organizations related to technology and information management, organizational transformation and development, physician management, and health policy analysis. So I'm very excited to have Dr. Fickenshire with me next week. So that's going to be a wrap for today. Thank you for joining me on ACO Watch, a midweek review, and we wait for CMS. Thank you. Join us again. Bye-bye now.